Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome on today's episode that we have Tony Gleason. She is developing manager at Disability Federation of Ireland. A year ago, I attended the self-advocacy course in Limerick, where I got to meet Tony and the other coordinators of that course. Hello and welcome to the show, Tony. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me along to talk to you. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Tell us about how you got involved in the area of disabilities. Well, it's a long time ago now, Aaron, and that's not to say I can't remember, but um, it's a little bit like uh, life. Um, it, it happens sometimes that, that uh, opportunities come along and choices you make uh, mean that you go down one road or the other. And um, when my children were very small, I got the opportunity to volunteer in a preschool for children with special needs. And when I was there, I, I was a nurse in a previous life, but I had worked in nursing for several years. And uh, so when I went to the preschool, I, I was working obviously with children who were three, four, five, six, and, and, and would always have been very interested in that. But uh, while I was there, um, the, um, <clears throat> the local area, discovered that uh, when uh, young people were coming out of school, there was yet another gap happening in the area where there was a lack of services for young people from 18 to about 23, 24, who didn't want to go into a residential service. And so um, because I was on hand there, I was invited to participate in that project as well and ended up moving 
from the preschool into um, an, a service for young adults uh, on mixed abilities, but primarily intellectual disability. And I was there for quite a few years. And um, one of the things that I discovered was that uh, in, in supporting those young adults to learn life skills and um, develop their capacity around uh, just understanding what was going on in doing their work and all of that, that they weren't very different from anyone else. And so I, I followed up in a course to do adult and community education. And that broadened my scope around the community sector as well as the disability sector. And in the meantime, parallel to that, I was on the board of the Centre for Independent Living in Tipperary. And um, and the, the, uh, the it's the time when, uh, I don't know if you even remember it, when uh, the uh, strategy for equality was launched. So that's right, right back in 1996, and um, and people with disabilities in Ireland. It became the organisation, but originally it was the Irish Council for People with Disabilities, and they had um, citizen advocates. So basically, a person without a disability, but who would advocate on behalf of a person with a disability. And so I applied for that position, a voluntary position, to do that. Uh, for Tipperary and that involved interviews uh, with people from England who had done this type of work before and I was accepted onto that program as well. So those are the two starting points really, uh, working um, working with young adults in, um, in with intellectual disabilities mainly and then moving into adult education but also into citizen advocacy. And at that time, did you find it um, very new regarding education in Ireland? Oh, it's unbelievably different from what it was now. Uh, The main focus was on special schools um, and special specialist treatments. And now there was the initiate the initial um, attempts at special needs assistance um, about uh, supports in the classroom and things like that. But it was before any of that happened. It was before we had a Disability Act. Um, so there was no legislation around disability primarily. There was there was legislation around equality and uh, equal employment and all of that, but there wasn't um, legislation around disability. So I'm, I'm definitely coming from back in the dark ages. And um, this uh, the strategy for equality was the first a countrywide um, consultation and submissions um, that took place over a, a period of time and uh, that involved listening exercises that were facilitated for people with disabilities all around the country. And it came up with 403 recommendations as to how the status of a person with a disability could be both supported and recognised in Irish society. So that that, um, that strategy for equality has been progressed now, but it's still as relevant today as it was then if you went back and looked at some of the recommendations. So yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, how it was at the time. Uh, quite different. Um, but also, um, I think maybe the, the beginnings of an energy around disability was, was starting. And um, it was also about uh, you know a time when there was a lot of activism in the Centres for Independent Living. And um, you'd remember of people like 
the likes of Martin Nocton, uh, who died recently, unfortunately, who were very, very front and centre in all of these listening exercises and in the activation of people with disabilities to be a part of the decision-making process. What did you learn through that that process where disability is still in, in, in unknown territory at that time? One, I, I suppose, personally, I learned that um, the some of the disadvantages and discriminations that were experienced by people with disabilities were experienced by other people either because of their poverty or because of their ethnic background or because of just being distant from, uh, if you like, the decision-making process. And that's why I actually chose to do adult and community education uh, because it meant that uh, you could bring a group of people together and it didn't have to be just people with disabilities. It could have been just people who are interested in making a better community for themselves and allow them and support them and facilitate them to get to know one another better and therefore build their capacity. And that's what that a lot of that is what the practical self-advocacy course that you uh, participated in last year is still retaining some of that ethos and some of that idea. What time period did all this activism kind of push disability kind of towards, not as where it's now, but kind of starting to pedal towards um, being more aware to, towards people? Yeah, that, that's a that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a difficult question to answer because sometimes when you're in the system, in other words, I work with the Disability Federation, and you can get an idea that things are changing and things are moving on. But if you step outside it and talk about disability in a community group that really doesn't have any focus on disability, you can actually say to yourself, "Oh my God, nobody knows anything about this." So sometimes we suffer because we talk to ourselves, if you know what I mean by that. And yeah. uh, we don't we don't actually um, get the do we don't do enough listening to people who are not involved in our sector still. Um, and um, and that's one of the things that came up in the last few years for DFI and for the other organisations that that would be our members. That um, not everybody. Um, I won't say cares about, but has an interest in or a motivation to get involved in disability rights or things like that. Um, so that's only that's still changing. But you know, we have we have the promise now of the UNCRPD. That's the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Ireland um, signed up to that quite a few years ago now but there is a promise from this government that it will be ratified uh, shortly so we keep our fingers crossed for that because that definitely is about looking at disability as a rights-based issue that it's not about services per se people need services to live their lives but it's not about deciding what a service should be it's about deciding how we support every single person with a disability and their families to be more involved, more included in the life of their community and more involved in the decision-making that affects them. So those kind of principles and values are what comes from the UNCRPD. And running parallel to that, 
we now have uh, a government that in the past, uh, the past iteration and this one are quite committed to the implementation of the National Disability Strategy. Now, what that does is strategy, if you like, makes sure that our system is fit for purpose. And if we're lucky, it gets uh, quite positive actions arising out of it, but it's not guaranteed. In other words, it gives us a baseline to build on. And we're hoping now that bringing the UNCRPD values and cultural aspects into it will actually enhance it very much more than just being a system, but that it'll actually be a lived experience for every person with a disability across the country in time. How did the adult community fit into this area of disability work that you do? Uh, well, I suppose uh, what I would, would say is I came at it from a perspective that everyone is entitled to dignity, respect, rights. Uh, and some people may need more support to access those rights or indeed to participate and others don't. So um, with regard to adults in the community, what I would be saying is, and possibly I would be going into the community saying, are there people out there who feel that they're excluded? Are there people out there who feel that they don't have a voice? Are there people out there that we can support to get involved without having to have a big pressure on them to be uh, to be the best, to be very good, to be all the voice of everybody, but just to be good enough to um, express your own views, express what it is that you feel your community needs and put that together with all the other people in the community who are expressing their needs and support them then to create, um, if not quite a plan, but certainly a list of issues that are relevant and critical even to the development of your own healthy, well community. And when you see a new document coming through through the government, what is your general opinion? Uh, my general opinion is, uh, and, and, and this is a personal one, um, is that uh, we're very fond of uh, looking for reviews, looking for further documentation about everything that we make a decision on without actually going back and seeing or other documents have been done in the recent past that are still relevant. So let's say, uh, uh, let's say take disability. We have uh, the strategy for equality, which was 1996. We have the disability strategy, uh, which was 2005. And we now have um, an NDS implementation plan. That's a national disability strategy implementation plan. So that's, uh, 1996, 2005, and now it's 2016, um, coming into 2017. And everything that we have done has only progressed things in a small way. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's hard to make sure that everything progresses together. But when you stop and every single government department feels as if they have to get a new document to prove that they need to do this work, then that only uses up money, 
it uses resources that could be best spent on either providing the service or or allowing the person with a disability to make their own decision to go forward. So, I mean, I, th- I think, uh, you know, that there's an awful lot of uh, talk about community groups and NGOs, you know, non-government organisations applying for funding that um, that replicates work that's being done in government. But I think, I, I, I would contend that government is equally guilty or uh, of doing just the same thing, uh, separating out uh, one department from another and thinking that because it's a different department, it needs a different review and a different set of plans to do the same thing, which is, in this instance, include people with disabilities. Do you know? So yes. I, think there's a, I think there's some wastage there. Um, and I think as well, it distracts them from actually uh, getting the people with a disability actively involved on what it is they want with their lives. Because uh, a colleague of mine used to say they have consultation fatigue. So basically, you bring them um, another uh, document to review, another set of um, actions to consult on. And, you know, if you took the, if you took the top off the paper and the date, it could be this year, it could be two years ago, it could be five years ago. And very little has changed, except that we're reviewing again. Do you know? So that's a frustration that I feel. And as I say, that's a personal frustration. I have, um, I have other uh, colleagues, I think, who, who are quite happy um, with the idea of reviewing things to make sure they're working. But maybe I'm, a, I'm just a little bit more um, longer, longer in the sector and able to see when I look back that there have been too many documents and not enough action. Do you feel that they're detached from a dis- uh, person that is it, has a disability? No, I, would, I wouldn't say that. I think um, I think that uh, what we have, let's say in our organisation, is a lot of opinions on how best to include people. Um, a lot of opinions, uh, and not even a lot of opinions, but a lot of strategies that we are trying at the moment to make work. And sometimes when a person with a disability isn't used to being involved, then that's the place to start. You know, that you actually have to go and talk to them individually and say, do you know, you have a right to be involved in this. And this is where our project in Limerick and Galway um, comes comes around again, is that... uh, you have a right to be involved regardless of where your education began or where it ended. You have a right right now to know what's happening in your life and in your community and how can we best help you to get involved in, in either your service, in your community, in organizations that uh, appeal to you, be it fishing or, or volleyball or whatever it might be. Um, and that when you do that, you're then talking to other people in the community and it gives you a different perspective on life and a different way of um, of suggesting how uh, the life of a person might be dis- different in a community if more people understood uh, the support they need, the service they need, but also the perspective that they have. Do you know that not everybody 
with a disability needs to be helped all the time. They have very active brains. They have very good creative ideas. Uh, they can suggest other ways of doing things and learning things that are not dreamt of in, in the regular societal norms, shall we say. Do you know? So that's the way I would think about it. Tell us about your projects in Galway and Limerick. Okay, the project in Galway and Limerick um, came about because of the fact that there were suggested changes um, and, and indeed proposed changes uh, for how people in a local community engaged with the local uh, statutory bodies like the Department of Health, the local authority, uh, the Department of Education, uh, Transport, all of that. And the structure uh, was described in, in quite um, a complicated fashion for most people because it was called a public participation network, which sounds very good, but of course it very quickly became shortened to PPN, which means very little to most people. Um, so what we try to do is we try and keep it as a public participation network. Um, it's based on the fact that organisations join that network and come together on topics that are of interest to them, like um, transport, like um, housing, uh, like, um, I suppose, um, employment and, uh, and work in the community, issues like that. And they come together and they talk about what it is that um, can be done for their local community to make it better. And the idea for us was that if we could get groups talking, that groups that included people with disabilities talking to one another about the possibilities in a community, then we would probably get a more inclusive plan for that community. So a plan that would acknowledge that transport needed to be much more accessible that housing needed to be available to people with disabilities and uh, but that people with disabilities also needed to recognize that there were very many homeless people and people on low incomes who also needed to house so there would be a reciprocal learning and the practical self-advocacy is much more about uh, looking at what how i know myself and how i decide um, and make uh, statements that are a responsible statements for the community. So in other words, that it's not a very selfish or egotistical way of looking at things, but it's a, uh, maybe a more adult way of looking at things, I would think, uh, that, that allows you to think about what it is that you do in your life, um, what responsibility you have to bring to your community. In other words, I can contribute and I can be there and I can represent uh, the disability ideal, not, not all of the disability sector or anything like that, nobody expects that, but it, that you sit at a table and you say, don't forget that disability actually puts an onus on you to think slightly differently. And then uh, when you do that, we also looked at another part of our project was looking at what those structures were. So in other words, describing how the structures work and um, 
how community and voluntary groups and social inclusion groups and environment groups can work together at a local level to make for a healthier and um, more vibrant and more connected community. And, um, and the third bit from our point of view was actually training people within the community to deliver something like the practical service advocacy that you participated in uh, to deliver it themselves. So in that instance, you have people with disabilities and others doing a co-facilitated training program around practical self-advocacy. So practical self-advocacy is literally something that the kid is practical. What do I need to do in order to advocate on my own behalf? Um, um, and self-advocacy is about, you know, this is more than about my story as well. It's actually about putting my story into a context for a community or for an area or for um, for a service and um, let's say transport and um, putting my perspective into it and then allowing that to go forward to be represented in a local community so that the community knows and um, in, in a broader way that there's more than just me in this community it's not just about women, it's not just about men, it's not just about travellers. It's about all of those together, and it's about people with disabilities, and it's about people from other countries, and it's about lesbians and gays and transgender people, and, and all of that. And so we learn by being together with these people to actually realise that we all want the same thing. We all want a healthy, happy community. We don't want people to be fighting. We would love if there was enough resources there to make it happen quickly. But even if there isn't, we can work together to make it happen. How long has the project been running for? Uh, the project the project itself, the initial project, ran, well, it was supposed to be a three-year project, but in actual fact, by the time the money was allocated and by the time we had to do the reporting, it was only 18 months. However, because it's a model that DFI and our evaluation showed to be a good model, we are beginning to replicate it in Kerry, in Dublin, in Mayo, and um, some other place that I can't remember. But anyway, we're beginning to replicate it in other areas around the country. We're, we're bringing groups of um, community groups, uh, let's say like a partnership company or a community development project or a family resource centre, all of which are based on community activity, uh, together with disability service providers uh, and, and then other uh, like social inclusion groups that have an interest uh, to come together uh, and get to know one another in the group first then provide the training and do that training provision together. And basically building relationships where maybe beforehand these would have been separate things for people who want it. So that's what we're wanting to do in order to perpetuate this now. And, and we and we think about the opportunity to make change at local level. And I think as well what we what we have uh, realized and have to realize is that change is slow 
and it really is based on uh, the goodwill and the activity and energy of everybody involved. So we just keep our fingers crossed on a lot of that. Since the project started to now, what kind of success are you have you guys seen? I suppose it's, it's mixed in that our evaluation was very, very positive and it was uh, very well received by the wheel who were the funders of the initial project. Um, the members of the network itself are are still very actively involved, which I think is, is a big success in and of itself. Um, we have nine people trained to do the training that you participated in now, and about five of those have a disability, and they will be co-delivering uh, co that training. So um, the, the numbers aren't huge, but we're very satisfied with the success of the project. And we think for something like, I think it was 23,000 or 24,000 euro, uh, we think it was money very well spent. How can we propel the um, success and change regarding disabilities? Now, if I had the answer to that, Aaron, I'm telling you, I think I could probably retire on my millions. <laughs> However, I still have I still have opinions. Mm. And, and just the other day, I was talking to my husband, who doesn't work in the sector at all, but who did accompany me and some friends of ours on um, a mixed holiday with people with disabilities um, and and let's call them able-bodied people um, to France and we stayed in uh, you know the key camp holiday camps you yes. know you stay in yeah. mobile homes like that. and um, he just made the remark that, that said you know when you're with somebody in in something that isn't a service setting so in other words, we weren't in, uh, you know, we weren't in a residential centre or a respite centre or in a even in a resource centre. We were on holidays. Um, that he said was the best way to get to know other people, regardless of whether they have disabilities or not. And it's, it's, it's this is only very recently, and I mean it's a long time since we went on that holiday, but we were just talking about it the other day, and I said. Do you know, he said, I said, that's not anything that we have purposefully done to make this change. You know, to give um, regular people the opportunity to have holidays or breaks or socialize um, in, in, a, I suppose in a neutral environment, do you know, mm. uh, so that people can get to know one another better. So that the conversations don't have to be about, do you need a wheelchair? Is it accessible? Uh, can you eat that? Will I cut up your food for you? Do you know? Yeah. So it doesn't have to be this service type relationship, but rather, are you going swimming this morning? Will we go to the beach? Do you want to go sightseeing? Um, what will we do when we're shopping? Where? What do we eat? You know, all of the things that if you like, regular people chat about <laughs> on regular days. You know, most of our lives are not spent, well, apart from myself, maybe, are, are not spent thinking about uh, national legislation and policy. And they're not spent about uh, looking at um, 
about how to make things better, uh, but actually to live the experience and then come away from it having enjoyed yourself. That's probably, um, I think that resonated with me and I haven't, I haven't got a project around that, uh, but I have some ideas about trying to do something like that that could make a difference. And um, so I don't know, uh, because I think everybody struggles with changing society so that it is more inclusive of people with disabilities, so it recognizes its responsibility um, so, that, uh, so that people have a better experience. Um, but at the same time, when I think of, when I turn off my computer and I go home and sit down, are these all the things that I think of all the time? Do you know? Or do I just think about going out to, going out for a walk, meeting my friends for coffee, um, do you know, going to the library and, and you know, living my life um, uh, just just like a normal person. You know, not everybody has their uh, their mind racing around how to make changes all the time. So I think uh, that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I actually think maybe we need to approach how we uh, change society and change cultures into something like action-based uh, projects that allow for people to be in one another's company without any other without any other focus in mind, without any um, maybe higher uh, focus in mind. In other words, that you're paid to be with them, to learn from them, to communicate, to chat, uh, to enjoy yourself. And at the end, that's what you reflect on, as opposed to whether five people did training and six people went swimming and seven people uh, bought, uh, you know, uh, good good uh, good touristy, touristy presents to bring home. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time trying to capture um, things that maybe don't matter as much as we think they do for the sake of accounting for the money. Do you know? Yeah, and I think that's what the society forgets around disabilities that we're still human at the end of the day. Yes, and, and, and at the beginning of the day and right throughout the day, that is just it. It's about other people, and and that's that's the thing. You you know you're you're saying it there, and and I'm 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 absolutely agreeing with you. Um, these are people that we're talking about, and they are as different and as the same as we are, and as we always will be. So you know, I mean, I might be interested in policy and legislation. I might be interested in changing the world, and there may be another person with a disability, or two, or three, or ten, who are interested in doing that. And there will be then twenty or thirty more who are interested in uh, watching Arsenal win a match or something like that. You know? Yeah. And it's it's about the, the acceptance of the diversity of the disability community, if there is such a thing. Um, but also the diversity of every human being on the planet and um, and just learning to live in harmony with one another uh, without it always having to be divisive. And um, I suppose we, we've come through a tough kind of a period in, in Ireland now, I think, because
because of the recession and because of the money spent and all of that. And it does appear as if, uh, once again, um, the minute a little bit of money came back into the pot, everyone became very, very selfish again and looking for to ha- looking to have their their pay scales reinstated to 2007 rates and 2008 rates and all of that. And um, I don't know whether um, uh, whether I suppose people people have uh, I suppose constraints and they have restrictions and they've been living a life where um, maybe they've been very restricted in what they could what what money they had to spend and whether they could afford their mortgages or their rents and that. But in every instance, uh, almost every instance, the elderly, people with disabilities, people from ethnic communities who are on social welfare, refugees, asylum seekers, are at very least worse off than the than the worst of those people who want their their wages reinstated. Do you know? Yeah. All of those people have a job. I would not deny them the right to have their democratic right to protest. I would just love if they would um come together and say, look, there there is there is a reinstatement of pay. Uh, please Let's negotiate that together with uh, the socially just thing of actually recognising that having a disability costs extra money, that living in rural Ireland in isolation where there is no transport needs a service more than it needs money. You know, in other words, that that person uh, in rural isolation, unless they're going to buy a car, it's not money that will make it different for them. It's actually having a transport service. So it's about maintaining a balance between services and money um, and and maybe looking at a better way to do it in Ireland um, rather than going back to exactly the way we did it before, uh, which, let's face it, didn't really work for us. You know, we got into big, big trouble than we did before. And yet uh, it seems as if the... um, that the lesson hasn't been learned. Have you seen other models across the world that could that Ireland could benefit or integrate into? Um, I suppose in small ways, um, in small ways, I have. Um, I would think that certainly in Australia and in Scotland, um, they they seem to have good community based models in Scotland. Uh, that that seem to be working, but they're not all that far ahead of us. I think we would need to be talking to them on a regular basis, from uh, so that we could learn from the lessons that they've learned from. Um, we also um, there, there's a good model of um, what they call local area coordination coming out of Australia, but unfortunately. It, it, it seems to me anyway that they've taken the model that was in Australia and they have applied a, a very rigorous um, tap to it in Ireland uh, with regard to money and constraints and restraints uh, with regard to how it can be spent and who it can be spent on. Because it's supposed to, well, that the model is supposed to look at a 
person with a disability in their local community and how they can be supported to engage with local um locally provided services but locally um local social um, activity and and the local community and i suppose what we seem to have done with that funding when it came into ireland is made it about a very tightly defined cohorts of people <coughs> um, based on specific criteria to meet the needs of uh, the national strategies of the HSE, which would be around uh, day services um, and funding day services um, on a model that in some ways is a good model, but it's still not the only model and it doesn't allow for an awful lot of choice or an awful lot of, um, of flexibility. So, yes and no is the, is the, is the answer, is an inconclusive one. Uh, we tend to see good models, bring them into Ireland, make them our own, and our own isn't always the best interpretation. Sometimes maybe we should just take it as it is and try it as it is before we impose a judgment on it. What would you feel about um, people with disabilities receiving financial aid from the government? Um, when, um, if you talk about the disability allowance, the mobility allowance, um, in a lot of instances, um, you know, people with a disability are on um, medical cards and things like that. I think um, for, for their own autonomy and independence, I think it would be a really good idea if um, if they are in receipt of services uh, that they have that that service that that money that is applied to services uh, could be, if you like, what they call disaggregated. If it could be separated from the organisations that currently um, apply it and and begin to begin the business of allowing for choice and independence through the people with disabilities themselves. Now that's happening in a couple of areas for people with intellectual disabilities um, and through um, the AT network, the Ashinatakiakta, um, and they support organizing, they support people with disabilities to direct their own services. Um, so, but that, but, but that generally has to do with um, the service that they're getting for maybe a PA, like a personal assistant, or it may be to do with a, a home help or to going to work and things like that. Um, so, but they're only small numbers, and yet again, um, they're they're always just maybe a pilot project or um, you know a time constrained project. So the, the chance for somebody to actually realize an aspiration of their own. So in other words, if you or I decide we want to do a, a degree and we want to go and do that degree, let's say in Belfast, um, that uh, the, the money would follow us so that we can actually have that course funded Get our uh, get our accommodation in Belfast. Make our friends there, and uh, travel back and forth to see our families or our parents or whatever it is, um, and and then have the freedom when we do that 
to actually look for a job in the whole country and know that the money that you have to support you will go with you wherever you are. And it should cross borders as well into Europe or into the UK or whatever. And do you feel a Brexit in the UK? Do you think that'd be a problem for the area of disabilities in the UK, do you think? Um, I would like to think that it won't. Um, but I think Brexit will have... One, what Brexit has done is it has shocked people uh, no more than the election of Trump the other day. I think uh, the status quo is shaken. I think a lot of people in the government circles uh, really didn't believe it would happen and therefore made no contingency plan. Um, and all of those kind of uncertainties actually become compounded when you bring them down to people who are on lower incomes or people who have, um, let's say, something like a disability payment or a welfare payment. So I think um, anything that's felt at, at one, at, let's say, at government level um, can be compounded in, in all the iterations of the story being told. So if the community hears about it and they hear there's going to be no jobs in X county or X town, then that becomes a problem. Then the, the people in that town then become fearful for their jobs. Therefore, if a person with a disability has a job, um, they are seen as maybe, um, how come he has a job and I don't, and I'm able-bodied? Do you know this kind of way? Um, human beings start to look at difference when they're vulnerable. And they start to, if you like, um, I think they start to create layers of, or levels of, um, entitlement maybe is the word. So in other words, um, I'm more able-bodied, so I'm more entitled to a job than someone who isn't able-bodied. I am. I have a degree, so I'm more entitled to a job than someone who doesn't have a degree. Uh, I have a family, so therefore I'm more entitled to a job than someone who doesn't have a family. Do you know we mm. start putting uh, we start putting conditionality onto onto our um, our experience because there's nothing certain anymore. So we try to create certainty, um, and I think that's. Um, that's probably something uh, that Brexit, that uh, the election of Trump, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, very many things, you know, the, the changes of government. I mean, look at the, the uh, Germany um, and, and Angela Merkel and the uncertainty of her position in the last couple of months. All of those kind of things um, make people uncertain because... Uh, you know, we, we have a program for government in this independent government, and I use the term loosely, you know, in, in, in inverted commas. Um, and it's, it's negotiated based on um, a lot of single-issue candidates in, in the independents. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And every one of them are bringing their single issue or their two issues to the table. And it's very easy, therefore, because... I don't believe yet that they have created a common aspirational goal for Ireland. But they haven't said, um, 
that this, this independent, in inverted commas again, government, uh, because it's not a party, doesn't have a unified goal for the country. Now, I would hope it does, and I would hope that it can get one. Um, but I think it, it's much more, it has been much more about um, negotiating, um, uh, almost like uh, negotiating um, a way forward that is developing as it goes. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, I think that, that can work, uh, except that I think somebody needs to be uh, looking at what we expect from that, or how can we expect for that for the people of Ireland? You know, do we want them to feel included? Uh, if we talked about um, how the elections in the United States went, the, the failure to recognise the silent, I presume, they're not quite a majority, but the silent part of the population, in other words, who don't have a voice in the media, who don't have a voice at Congress, who don't have a voice in the Senate, who don't have a voice even in the professions. These are the, the, the blue-collar workers of middle America, disenfranchised, no jobs, no money, and what they feel is vulnerable, um, ousted by new immigrants, uh, people coming into their country and taking their jobs. And I use the words advisory. I mean, I'm not saying that this is what they do, but yeah. this is what they feel. And if we don't recognize how people feel as well as what they know, then we can't go forward together. That's what I think. Uh, do you know? So so I think it's, it's very much about, um, about appreciating uh, what people feel as well as what they know. And that's not to say that everything needs to be touchy feeling, but uh, you know, as they say, but if you recognise that if somebody is coming to a meeting and their body language and their attitude is either aggressive or passive aggressive, even when they're saying yes, they're really meaning no. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. How? Can someone with a disability portray their voice so they're not vulnerable and they can uh, achieve what they want to achieve? Okay, um, I thought that's, a, that's a tough one because um, it's a little bit like the last conversation. It, it's about every every single person with a disability is different. Um, we don't do difference very well in Ireland, <laughs> do you know? Yeah. And maybe, maybe other countries don't either, do you know? Hmm. Um, so some of it is about uh, finding finding collective interests that you that are that you're on the one page on. So let's say a lot of people um, believe that there should be a, a community radio for people with disabilities in Ireland. Let's say um, now that would buck the mainstream uh, national policy that we have, but it also could provide a whole load of opportunities for people uh, with a disability who want to do media studies, who want to do uh, develop skills around interviewing, who want to actually do production and post-production work. And there could be a really good idea for doing that and, um, and 
it has, it has lots of positive aspects and but if it can be a part of um, a national program of filtering in uh, then it's probably a really good idea but uh, sometimes because we have a national policy for mainstreaming now we believe that we have to throw out everything that's special or everything that is specially uh, adapted to include people with disabilities and I suppose from my point of view and at this stage of my career I've discovered that everything is about balance it's all about you can't have one without the other you have mainstreaming but you recognize that some people need special support you have special but you recognize that special needs to move into mainstream if people are to realize their potential and live in the community so it's about it's not about one or the other it should be about both and we should be creating a fluidity between both i think the the reason why is because the society and and our country is disabling us instead of enabling us and yes, uh, I, I would i would agree and i and i would think that it disables more than just people with disabilities so even that is about um could be about creating alliances with others who are disabled and um, it is obvious to me that some people are disabled by society because they don't get the resources they don't get the wheelchair they don't get uh, the, the white cane they don't get the assistive technology and um, everything is about proving that you continue to have a need as opposed to being respected and getting the dignity that is you're entitled to as a human being and a citizen of Ireland um, and it really is about uh, other people then in the community who have less money are also if you like, disabled by the system because they go in and they look, let's say they look for a house or they look for some income supplement and they're required to prove uh, that they need it more than the person who is paid in a paid employment is um, required to assist them in getting it what they need. Do you, do you know what I mean? The, the, the similarities. It, the, you know, there's, there's more than one way to disable somebody, um, and we understand it because of the fact that uh, maybe some of the disabling is already visible in society for the disability sector, and yet the experience can be felt with very many other groups of people. Uh, who may be disabled in other ways and so creating alliances with those other people who are if not similarly disabled but are disabled in other ways uh, by society and society's norms uh, may be the way to actually challenge it and make changes. And through the policies and uh, methods do you think that's the best way of challenging the system in some way? Um, I do, do you know I think I think it, it maybe should be um, a variety of methods I think um, I think more and more we need we need as a society we need to be getting to know our neighbors and maybe not uh, 
uh, staying in our little cliques. Now, having said that, when when most or uh, when most organisations, when most families need to have two people working in order to sustain the mortgage and to pay for childcare and all of that, it's very hard to get to know all your neighbours and all the things that are going on in your society. I think sometimes, uh, you know, and I mean, it's not that I want women to be um, sitting at home and, uh, and you know, nailed to the sink or anything like that, or indeed men. Uh, but sometimes when only one person from a partnership needed to go out to work to sustain the family, there was a little bit more flexibility in the family dynamic for people to know other people, to get in and out of uh, groups and associations and societies and, um, and the, the sporting arena and, you know, the community spirit seems to have been uh, sacrificed at the altar of of uh, income and income maintenance and people then being very tired at the end of the day and sitting in their own house watching their own television, looking at their own uh, computer and staying indoors, do you know? Um, so I, I think there's there's something about that as well. I think there's a need to maybe uh, get back down into uh, community activity, if at all possible, um, and, and do it that way, do you know, bring, begin to build up um, some sort of community um, engagement and community dynamic um, that, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of activity, there are a lot of people trying to do that and and I think some places it, move, it, it works and some places it doesn't but I do think we have to keep trying. Um, I know you're uh, going to, sorry, wrong question. On the European level, uh, what is the access um, conversation of disability, do you think, or have you experienced? Yeah, um, well, yes, there's, there's, a, there's two or three places where um, where GFI are actively involved in at, in, at a Europe level, um, and that would be at the European Disability Forum and on the... Um, and, and we're we're involved in a couple of um, EU partnerships uh, with regard to so EU social funds or Erasmus funding. That would be Erasmus is the uh, lifelong education funding, and um, and there are there are lots of uh, benefits to be gathered from that, and that would be like a cross national. Uh, sharing of information, uh, building relationships, learning what other organisations uh, that are similar to DFI or service providers do in other European countries for the most part. And um, and the opportunity too for uh, service users or people with a disability themselves to uh, do a little bit like what I spoke about a while ago, that getting together with other people in a similar life situation to themselves, to actually learn together, to uh, explore together the potential of life uh, as a young person with a disability or indeed as a middle-aged person with a disability if you're not living in a residential setting. Uh, to you know, to be uh, autonomous, 
in other words, to make your own decisions, to make choices, to be allowed to fail. You know, we've gone very bad at failure in Ireland. And uh, the contention always is from the entrepreneurs is if you don't know how to fail, you don't know how to succeed. So, you know, you don't always, uh, you, you go into a new idea um, uh, thinking that it can only be a success. And if, if it is deemed to be unsuccessful, then it wasn't worth doing. Whereas in actual fact, it, it, it definitely is about that old maxim about, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking an egg. So, you know, you have to actually look at allowing things to break so that you can fix them in a new way, you know? And I think some of our engagement in Europe allows us to do that um, and allows us to do that together. What it also does is it allows uh, people with disabilities to meet across Europe uh, to look at European legislation and and what use that can be to us, uh, either as well as or over and above Irish legislation, if we don't feel we're getting what we want. The, in, the involvement of the UNCRPD also offers the, the opportunity to challenge things on a human rights basis. You know, to, to say, uh, you know, you can't do this because I have my rights and, um, and therefore uh, I should be allowed to make a choice I should be allowed to fail. I should be allowed to have my own home. I should be allowed to make my own decisions. I don't know if you got a chance to watch the Paralympics there during the summer, but it's a, it's like a aspect where it's demonstrating the achievements that people with disabilities are doing. Um, do, yeah. do you think outside the Paralympics, is there another way that, that we could demonstrate the achievements through media or other aspects? Um, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question, so it is, Aaron, because, I mean, it, it, it's, um, we, we do have in society today, I believe, um, a, a fascination with celebrity, a fascination with success and achievement, and I, and I think that's brilliant, so it is, and gosh, I would not actually... Um, I wouldn't deny the success of any person in the Paralympics or indeed the Olympics um, as to the level of hard work and achievement uh, that goes into anybody just to, to get there. The, the participation is, is just um, uh, absolutely humongous, really, so it is. Um, and, and I do think, okay, if you take that as a sport, as sport being the, the focus of that, I do think that there's an opportunity in culture and in the arts to see what could be done there. Do you know? I mean, that's another side. I mean, Ireland is, uh, you know, is very, very culturally capable. I mean, we've a huge number of authors. We've, we, you know, we have very strong um, creativity with regard to uh, cartooning, with regard to small films, with regard to an awful lot of. Uh, we say book writing with regard to um, with drama. Sorry, I couldn't think of the word there for a minute. With regard to drama, and they are huge ways um, of of uh, if you like garnering um, an audience to tell a story in a slightly different way. 
Do you know? So I mean, if you're doing a drama and you have somebody with it in a dis- somebody in it with a disability, or indeed it's written by uh, a person with a disability, the perspective will permeate the whole story. It doesn't have to be about people with disabilities all the time. They can just participate in it. Uh, likewise, if you're doing paintings, e- either the paintings can uh, incorporate incorporate the imagery of, of disability or they can be done by an artist with, with a disability do you know uh, likewise uh, I, I haven't come across too many of them so I don't know their name but there are several groups who, who play music who sing who um, perform and we've had them at different um, conferences and events uh, for uh, for DFI in the past and uh, just to get that out there as well, I mean, I think I think it's, it would be a very good idea. Again, not always the thing that's immediately funded, do you know? And this is what happens. You have to be very passionate about wanting to, to perform your music or or do your art and all of that if if you're not actually going to make money from it. So in essence, you're you're doing it on a voluntary basis and trying to make money someplace else, or you're doing it uh, on a shoestring. Uh, so yes, in one way, I, I not in one way, I do think it has potential. I don't know that it's given, um, if you like, the. I don't know if it's given the attention that it could be given to make it more. Um, valuable to the sector, if that was the case. Where is DFI, Disability Ireland, um, going for the future? What's plans? Okay, so <laughs> we're, we're actually at, um, not, not quite a crossroads, uh, we, we've, we've just signed off on um, a new strategic plan. Um, it uh, it is, is moving, maybe not uh, not quickly but inexorably towards um, the the ratification of the UNCRPD, the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and recognising that within the strategy. So that is um, a lot of our active activities are about the active inclusion and participation of people with disabilities in any of our projects and uh, programs going forward. Um, uh, by the same token, we are looking at supporting our member organisations to discuss um, and to uh, open up to um, the ideas of change and working in a changing environment where people with a disability are much more likely to want to be actively involved in decisions that affect them and, and how we can support that um, with supporting people into either social enterprise or enterprise or um, employment. We have a we have a an employ- a conference coming up on um, employment on on just next week on the twenty first of November in Dublin Castle called Make It Work. Uh, so um, these are the kind of things that are um, that are that are on our agenda, um, including uh, developing the. Um, the community participation training, uh, which is the practical sort of advocacy that you were involved in yourself, Aaron, 
and including developing those kind of actions. The two shoulders to that kind of work are uh, with uh, a research hub that is looking at participatory research, action-based research that is relevant and uh, current and relevant to people with disabilities living in Ireland today. So in other words, that we would get very active um, what they call real-time information uh, that we can use uh, to to um, to validate our work um, in that, that way. And on the other side, uh, we have um, a, a sub-category or a sub-organization called SOLA, um, which is about um, lean management, uh, quality assurance in, in, in service delivery, um, uh, building up the capacity of org- of our member organisations to be well governed and to adopt the code of governance, um, so that they are good companies uh, with uh, real integrity um, and ones that are moving with the times, so that they're. So that you know the the accusations of um, of being uh, steeped in the past or or retaining a charitable outlook and all of that, so that they can be shed and and people can uh, the members can move forward into the future, uh, being very actively and dynamically involved and responsive to the needs of members of the people using their service. So that's where we're that's where we're going. We hope in working around people with various disabilities. If the foot was on the other side, where you had the disability, what would you rather prefer: yeah. the cure or a lifestyle adjustment? Um, I think uh, that, that's a very good question, and um, and I think sometimes if I was to think about it, I think maybe. I would, if, if I applied a disability tomorrow, I think I would be looking for the cure. I would be hoping that once I had accepted what had happened, I would be looking at um, much more about um, accepting the situation and looking for the lifestyle adjustment. And I think that brings me to something that, that um, is, I think, rarely recognized. And that is that, um, that disability... Um, one, it, 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 it comes in a couple of iterations. Okay, if you were born with a disability, that's all you know in your life. And therefore, accepting yourself is probably, is probably very closely embedded in whether your parents and the rest of your family are able to accept what has happened and whether they're able to embrace who you are as you are and whether they're able, and, and, and therefore, and that's a very um, critical, I think, juncture, because we don't really have a very strong support mechanism for parents of children with disabilities. We don't recognize that the, the, the um, actual action of a diagnosis is very traumatic emotionally, that it is sometimes in the nature of uh, almost a grieving process for what what should have been, and I use all of this advisedly, the perfect child, uh, not, uh, knowing as a parent that no child is perfect, but still, 
you you um, you go through a pregnancy as a mother um, and and as a, a father uh, expecting this this perfect child. If if by any chance a child is, is born with any sort of a disability or a disabling condition, then from that very time uh, there is an experience in the parent of having failed or being guilty for causing it or not being able to accept it or fighting and railing against it and looking for every sort of service to make it right. And I think we don't do very well in supporting parents through that very vulnerable time. And I think if we did, we would have parents um, and young people who are much better able to accept themselves for who they are because an awful lot of people with a disability that I've spoken to uh, would not actually, if they were if they were reborn, would not actually choose to be re- reborn as not themselves, which in essence is what it would be if they didn't have the disability. Um, so there's that. And then there's people who acquire a disability, um, maybe in later life or through traumatic accident or something like that, and neither are they supported to understand that it is a deeply traumatic um, emotional event as well as possibly a physical event or a, or a, or a, um, a psychological event, do you know? Um, and I think we, we do ourselves a disservice in that instance. Um, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people who say they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't get rid of their disability if they could. Are maybe idealistic and disingenuous. I think they'd all probably like to try it without the disability if they could, and see how they got on. I remember. I am very, very open to correction on that because I don't have. I don't have that experience. Uh, but um, I. I do think. I think. Um, Disability, no more than anything that happens to you in your life that is traumatic, um, be it at birth or otherwise, is something that it has to be processed. And there is the, you know, the, the, the stages of grief or indeed trauma are about denial. So parents or indeed a person with a disability denies that it has any effect on them at all. Um, they go through anger fighting against it and sometimes I think that's a lot of the place where activists may be stuck, you know, where they where they are fighting against, fighting against, fighting against uh, the system and all of that. And that anger is very valuable when it, it actually makes changes in, uh, in society. Um, and then there is the acceptance of who you are, uh, which is the question you asked me, you know, would I prefer to be cured or accept who I am? And I think that's, that's a, a place of maturity that you can only come to having gone through the other iterations. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and then there, there is the, the, the change, the management of the new person that you are, if you like, once you've accepted what has happened. Um, so I, I think that um, it, it's not a simple yes or no answer. And um, I can only say that I think if something happened to me tomorrow, 
um, and I found myself uh, with a disability of whatever kind, um, always presuming that I understood what was happening, I think that I would uh, I would wish and wish and wish and wish that it hadn't happened. I would hope and hope and hope that it, w- it could be reversed and fixed. And But if it couldn't, I hope that there would be somebody there to support me while I came to terms with it and decided on a way forward uh, that would allow me to be the best person I can be in my new iteration, if you like, my new way of being. Do you do you think the symbol of a wheelchair identifying disabilities, do you think that's the wrong symbol to have for a disabled person to be identified as? I suppose it's stereotypical. It's universally understood. So I think getting rid of it um, might take uh, more energy um, than sticking with it. That's one thing. What it does do, though, is it, um, it creates a perception that unless you're in a wheelchair, you don't have a disability, do you know? Mm. And it would be almost impossible to uh, signify every single disability uh, through something that is as universally recognised as the wheelchair symbol, do you know? Um, So I I think uh, a few years back, in fact, maybe even more than a few, um, the Equality Authority, as it was then, um, had a project called um, Stamp Out Stereotyping, you know, so basically um, that you didn't use a whole load of uh, stereotypical images for uh, for things like disability or poverty or exclusion or any of that. And I think a lot of the work that was done with it was very good. However, I still see that uh, there is no change in uh, how they identify parking spaces for people with disabilities. I know that there's uh, that stickers are still the same. Um, I think that anywhere you go, um, you will see uh, the the wheelchair symbol. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think maybe I would I would have to see what people came up with as an alternative and see if it grabbed the attention of people as quickly as as the, the wheelchair does. I'm not saying the wheelchair is ideal at all because it narrows the focus, but I'm not sure what else you would get that would give you the same impact without a lot of training in society to understand of um, new symbol means, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and do you think it's kind of a similar question as the last one? But the rega- regarding the words disabled, impairment, words similar to that, do you feel it's clouding the the image of a disabled person? Um, I don't know. I, I struggle with this sometimes myself, so I do because uh, one one thing that uh, that I often think is that we do the English language.
disables you from doing things, right? Now we have come to the other side of the flip side of that, where society disables, and I think that that's that's perfectly okay. But um, impairment, you know, I have to look. I think we would need to go into a huge, big, uh, if you like, uh, reconstruction of how we understand language if we were to get rid of some of those. Because we have to go down the road of redefining normal, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and where that came from. Because normal, um, particularly if you look at IQ, normal is... Is, a, is part of a continuum, but it's a narrow range, you know. People on the autistic spectrum um, are higher than normal, in inverse commas, some of them, and, uh, and some of them are, are lower than normal. And people with intellectual disabilities would be seen as being lower than normal. And people with, um, with uh, physical disabilities, but who have, if you like, uh, special learning needs learn differently and therefore their IQ presents differently in pictures than uh, than the normal uh, if they were asked to do an IQ test they probably wouldn't succeed in inverted commas and yet they know just as much as everybody else does so um, I think we would have to do an awful lot of redefinition of language um, if we were to truly um, change the wording and, and, the, and the language around disability. Um, that's not to say that it shouldn't happen. I think it possibly could. But again, when, you know, when you think about the fact that, um, if you like, now English tends to be the universal language of business, the universal language of uh, development, the universal language of commerce, um, I think it probably uh, would be no harm to actually have some sort of a, a project around something like that. But again, making changes in languages, they, they tend to happen um, organically. And I'm not sure how well they happen if you actually contrive to have them happen. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. So in other words, if you set up a whole new um if you like, uh, language around disability. I'm not sure how well it would be taken up by people who don't have to care. Do you know that kind of way? And you might find yourself even more confused um, if the language is then, if there are two languages for the one experience. Tony, I want to say thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your knowledge, stories, experience and topics. It was a pleasure talking to you, Aaron. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.